We are going through Psalm 94 this morning. We've been going through, we're going to start going quicker and skipping over more of them, but we're going through book four of the Psalms. The Psalms are not randomly thrown together. They're arranged into five books. This book is mainly uh, against the backdrop of the Babylonian exile that Israel went through and all of the deep pain and reflection and wisdom that came out of that for God's people. Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his wisdom and help. Lord, help us to understand your word. Thank you that you speak to us across these thousands of years, showing us where we need to trust in you and make you our stronghold. Help us to see clearly and live clearly in light of your word as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Over and over and over again, the Bible says that God is angry and that this is a good thing. But in a lot of ways, our society laughs off the idea of God's wrath. To many people today, his wrath seems backwards, even harmful. But ironically, because of the very deep influence of Christianity on our society, many people today take it for granted that God is loving and that it's just kind of his job to forgive us and accept us. But at the same time, Our society 
is profoundly angry about injustice. We're happy to nurse our anger about injustice and assume the wisdom of our own solutions to it. But our world largely rejects God's anger and so also scorns his solutions. But the great irony, as always, is that when humans attempt to wrestle the scepter of vengeance out of God's hands and wield it on their own terms, they only end up inflicting greater misery and injustice on the world. Our society is consumed with injustice and equity and restitution and payback. But it's only going to make things worse as long as it continues to insist that God mind his own business and stick with being nothing more than a cosmic Siri. By contrast, this psalm shows us why and how it's a good thing that God is angry, particularly that he's angry toward evil rulers. This is one of many of what we call imprecatory psalms. These are biblical prayers that show us how to entrust our good and wise God with punishing evildoers and oppressors. We're taught and encouraged, even required, to pray that God would do this. Our world has a lot to be angry about. But this psalm is here to help us see the goodness of God's anger, especially his anger towards wicked rulers who harm his own people, even as these evil leaders sometimes even claim to be working on his behalf. God's wrath is so much better than our wrath. And as we see it and embrace it through this psalm, we can and we should become more patient, more joyful, more peaceful in the midst of injustice. God does not abandon those who trust him to the injustice of this world. The first piece of the psalm is a plea for help. We've already seen this repeatedly in the psalms we've looked at the last few weeks. Verses 1 to 7, a plea for help. The psalmist cries out, God, would you just do something about all this evil? Would you just do something? In verse 1, he twice addresses God as the God of vengeance. Literally, it says God of revenges. Because God is so good and so beautiful, it's his very character to punish evil. God is not the head-patting Santa Claus that so many people want to think that he is. Instead, he lovingly burns with holy hatred toward anything that clouds his glory or harms the wellness of his beloved creation, particularly humanity and most of all his own adopted people, the church. The psalmist appeals to God's character as the God of revenges and begs him to shine forth. He's saying, I want you to flash with your brilliant light in the midst of darkness. In verse 2, he addresses God as the judge of the earth. And he says to him literally, get up, stop sitting down. Repay the proud what they deserve. 
He is pleading for God to carry out justice. Now, classically and biblically, justice does not mean what I want. It does not mean what I happen to merely feel like I deserve. It does not mean whatever a professor or a politician tells you that you deserve. Justice, classically and biblically, means getting what is owed to you, getting what is rightly yours. The psalmist is saying to God, these arrogant, evil rulers are not getting what they deserve. They're getting away with it all. And so pay them what they're owed. This is the language of financial payment. Pay them judgment. Now it's true. At the heart of the Christian gospel is this wonderful good news that anybody who trusts in Jesus, no matter how sinful or evil they are, that they can receive something that they don't deserve. They can receive new, eternal life. And in a sense, this is unjust. This is why so many people in the New Testament are shocked and so offended when Christians start teaching about this. Jesus bore God's wrath against us even though we're the ones who deserve it so that we could receive God's blessing even though He's the one who deserves it. But this is not just a matter of God winking at sin or sweeping it under the rug. That would be unjust. It would be evil for God to just let sin slide because. Because He feels like it. Because He wants to lower the bar. The reason that what theologians call this wonderful exchange between us and Jesus, the reason that it's actually and truly just, is because when we trust in Jesus, God unites us to him so that his righteousness truly, not just fictionally, but truly becomes ours in the same way that our sin truly became his on the cross. The point is that God always punishes evil. There is always wrath towards sin. The question is who bears it? Us or Jesus? Those are the only two options. The psalmist is praying here that God would carry out his justice on these evil rulers, that they would receive the punishment that they deserve as long as they refuse to submit to God and to his Messiah. And the psalmist now is going to point to their behavior to show that they're not doing this. They're not submitting to God. Their behavior betrays that. The first thing about their behavior that he complains about is their arrogant words. Verse 3, they are exulting. They're celebrating as they grind the weak and the godly into dust. In verse 4, you hear that they are gushing forth. This is the language of a fountain. They're gushing forth with boasts about how great they are how different they are, how superior they are. Down in verse 7, they're even saying, God doesn't see, God doesn't care. He's letting us get away with it. He might even be on our side. In many ways, they really are viewing themselves as little gods, capable of ruling and cleansing the world on their own and for their own sakes and for the sakes of their friends. But it's not just arrogant words. It's also arrogant actions. In verse 5, they are crushing and afflicting God's own people who are described here as his treasure, his precious inheritance. And so just like they've done all through history, just like they're doing in many places around the world today, 
These rulers hate God's people. They say, you uppity, divisive Christians. All your talk about Jesus being the real king, all of your preaching about there being an eternal world of rewards and punishments, all your refusal to get in line behind the latest panic or campaign or two minutes of hate against the latest enemy. Verse 6 says that this arrogance also shows up in their actions in their destroying people's very lives. The psalmist says they kill the widow and the sojourner. They murder the fatherless. This is the biblical trifecta of society's weakest. These three groups often show up together. These are those who don't have resources or connections to defend themselves against the thievery and the corruption of the powerful. Over and over and over again, God says in the Bible that he is particularly attentive when the poor cry out to him because they know that they have nowhere else to turn. There are many evils inflicted on the weak in our world. Christians can and should care about all kinds of injustices in America today. But this is why abortion is so particularly hideous. There is no one more vulnerable, no one more voiceless than unborn babies, even as at the same time so many powerful people zealously promote their slaughter and wail about limitations upon it. Further down in the psalm, you hear a bit more about who these people are and what makes what they're doing so infuriating and so disturbing. You see, these are not just your usual thugs and criminals. They are political elites. They're insisting that they must be obeyed and respected because of their positions and their laws and their traditions. Look down at verse 20. This is the end of the psalm, but it gives us more clarity about who the psalmist is so worried about. He says that they're wicked rulers. Literally, it says the throne of destruction. So they're sitting in what we would call today the executive branch. The psalmist also says they're framing injustice by statute. They're sitting in the legislative branch. They're lecturing everybody about how this is the law of the land. You just have to do what we say. In verse 21, we hear that they are banding together. The word has to do elsewhere with uh, gangs of robbers getting together to go on raids. And so the idea here is that there's a lot of them. Maybe even they were chosen and put there. But then lastly there in verse 20, you hear that they are condemning the innocent. They're sitting in the judicial branch too. They have positions and buildings and legislation and votes and coalitions, but they're evil. And God hates what they're doing. God will punish them for it. Because you see, according to the Bible, justice is a function and an extension of God's character. Justice is not a function of the desires and the schemes of the powerful. It does not matter which flag or patch or title you wear. It does not matter whether you have received 51% of votes. It does not matter how many universities and journalists support you. It does not matter if you claim to be doing it to keep us safe or to spread democracy or to save the planet. It does not matter if you think you are smarter or know better or care more. Theft is theft, fraud is fraud, murder is murder, invasion is invasion, tyranny is tyranny. 
John Calvin, the Swiss reformer, commenting on this psalm in the 1500s, echoes what many Christians said before him and have said since him. We'll hear a little bit more about them in a bit. He says, commenting on this, that political leaders who rule unjustly do not actually have authority from God and his law. He says, the psalmist speaks of domestic enemies pretending to be judges in the nation. And as honorable as a throne may be in name, it stops having any worth or value with God when it is abused by wicked men, for he never approves of iniquity. I'm going to camp on this side point, sub point, for a little bit. I'm going to exercise a bit of pastoral prerogative and go on a rabbit trail because I think this is something we need to learn about. I am deeply concerned for you as a people and for our society and for the church more widely on these issues. Not just because there is a long and a deep history of idolizing politics and government in American society and many of its churches, but especially because of what governments have been doing for the last two years and because of how so many churches and so many Christians have approached it and responded to it. Christians may choose to merely comply with unjust laws for various reasons. There are some good reasons to go along with bad laws. But they are not morally obligated to do so. Sometimes they must not do so. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King Jr. said something similar to what we just heard from Calvin. He's defending his practice of actively encouraging people to disobey the Jim Crow segregation laws. And in this letter, King cites the 5th century pastor Augustine and the 13th century theologian Aquinas to make the point that an unjust law is not really a law. The Westminster Standards are a couple of theological documents from the 17th century that our own church holds to be as very good summaries of what the Bible teaches. All the elders and all the deacons in this church make promises that they believe it and they will teach it. It makes the same point. The Westminster Confession says that Christians, when in this part, talking about what are our obligations in relationship to the state, it says Christians should obey the ruler's lawful commands. That's very different than saying that Christians should obey whatever they say until they explicitly tell you to disobey God. The larger catechism, the Westminster larger catechism, says that those who are in power, and this is not just government power, it could be parents, it could be in the family, it could be pastors, those in power actually lessen and eventually lose their authority by, quote, unjust, unwise, rigorous, or negligent behavior. The flip side of that is that our moral obligation to submit to their authority also lessens and is eventually lost. If I go crazy and I start telling you to do all kinds of crazy things, you don't have to listen to me, even if I still have the title of pastor. In the last couple years, all over the world, with widespread support, governments have inflicted a great deal of suffering and injustice in the name of safety. The damage will last for decades, most of all to the poor and the weak. They have even commanded Christians to not gather to worship him, to not sing to not see each other, to not take the sacraments. In the Western world, it has been 1,700 years since Christians were so widely forbidden from worshiping and meeting with each other. 
Back then, 300 AD, it was also in the name of the greater good of society. It always is. Our Westminster Confession in its chapter on civil government is very clear that the state has no authority to regulate or hinder the work and the worship of Christ's church. It says, No law of any commonwealth should interfere with, prevent, or hinder the proper exercise of the church's government and discipline. It goes on, The government must ensure that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without interference or disturbance. We look back today on Jim Crow, on the Holocaust, on the transatlantic slave trade, and we rightly shake our heads at how so much injustice could be promoted by rulers and then accepted and supported and defended by so many Christians. A lot of well-meaning Christians told Martin Luther King Jr. that he needed to stop talking so much about rights and freedom, that he was just causing trouble, that he was just being divisive, that he just needed to be quiet. But it's easy to do this looking back at other people in a different time and culture. It's easy for us to praise and admire those few back then who sacrificed so much to fight it all. Now, please understand, I'm not equating COVID mandates with slavery or gas chambers. But are we prepared, not just to look back into the past and shake our heads at people and and praise them for what they did, are we prepared today to look around at our own world and ask hard, honest questions about injustice coming from today's rulers, inevitably defended and demanded in the name of some greater good? Are we prepared as Christians to suffer the costs for disagreeing, disregarding, even disobeying? There are far worse things for your soul than being mocked and scorned, even than being fined or arrested. I'm done with my rabbit trail. Let's keep going. God hates injustice, all its forms, all its sources, but especially from the powerful. We can and we should name and lament the injustices of this world and we should pray for God's judgment against it. It's a good thing to pray this way. Not because it's a therapeutic exercise that helps us just to kind of feel better about it all, even though nothing's really changing, but because God's actually there, because God's watching, because he cares, because he will do something about it. In verses 8 to 15, after this initial plea and lament, We have this bursting of insight and wisdom into the whole situation. In verses 8 and 9, the psalmist calls out these evil rulers for their stupidity. They think they can get away with it forever, that they are not accountable to anybody. And he says, don't you dare think that the God who made your ears is not listening. Don't you dare think that the God who made your eyes is not watching you. In verse 10, he says that the God who through all of history has been disciplining the nations, making them rise, tearing them down whenever he wants over and over and over again. He says, do you really think that this time it's different? That you can escape from God's standards of justice? Verse 11, the psalmist says, God knows that you and your lofty plans are nothing but smoke. It's the same word used here over and over in Ecclesiastes. We translate it there as vanity. Here we hear that it's a breath. Your thoughts, even of the mightiest, are nothing but a breath. It's vanity and smoke. 
God says to these evil rulers, you morons. We politely translate it as you dullest of the people. You morons. I am not going to take this. But then in verse 12, God turns to his own beleaguered, troubled people. He offers us a series of precious encouragements and promises. First, he says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline and whom you teach out of your law. God uses times of suffering to shape us and mature us, including the kind of suffering that we've been talking about, the suffering that comes with living under foolish and evil rulers. For God's own beloved people, we've already heard this in book four of the Psalms, for God's own beloved people who've been adopted into his family by grace, experiencing suffering and misery and injustice is not a punishment from God, but rather instead it's his loving fatherly instruction in the school of our crucified Lord Jesus. Verse 13 says that God actually has our good in mind. We don't often believe this. We think he's out to get us. But it says, no, God knows what's good for you. It says he's preparing you for a world of eternal rest from days of trouble. In the meantime, God says, I'm just digging a pit for the wicked. Uh, Calvin's commentary on this, he says, you know, the idea here is that you have a dead body laying on a bed and someone's in the backyard digging a grave. And you're just kind of waiting until the grave is done and then you dump the body in. The point is that the outcome is certain. Verses 14 and 15 say that the Lord will never abandon us that he will restore justice for us and in this world. And so we wait and we pray and we mourn with patience. Then on the heels of these words of comfort for his people, in verse 16, you get another kind of lament at the injustice that's going on. But this time it's got more of a maturity about it. It's got a wider perspective given what we've just heard about what God is up to in the world. The psalmist says, Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? Where is God? amidst so much evil? The answer is not nowhere. The answer is not even I'm not sure. The answer is that he's right here. Verse 17 says, The Lord is our help. He's keeping us from falling into total despair, what the psalm calls the land of silence. Verse 18, God's steadfast covenant love for his undeserving sinful people That covenant love holds us up even when we're stumbling. Verse 19, he says, When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Literally, it says, When disturbing thoughts are deep within me. The fatherly goodness and wisdom of God should comfort us even when we are profoundly troubled about the injustice of this world and its rulers. There are so many people all across the political spectrum whose disturbing thoughts deep within them about injustice are devouring themselves and they are leading them to devour other people. Only God can rescue us from this cycle of bitterness and hatred and disdain. God is here with us. He's in the darkness. He's watching over us. He's shaping us. He's guiding us. Hasn't he shown us this more than ever by coming in human flesh as Jesus? John 1 says that in Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The last few verses tie it all together. 
Verse 20, can the throne of destruction be allied with you, the God of perfect justice and goodness? Of course not. Of course not. Even if for now they are banding together to ruin the lives of the godly and the innocent. The psalmist says, yeah, there is a lot of injustice. It's really awful. God hates it and we should grieve it. But even so, he says, God has become my stronghold. God has become my refuge. Our ultimate hope is not in any leader or election or policy. Our ultimate hope is in God. God knows exactly what's going on and he will do something about it. In his own timing and in his own ways, he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. God is angry. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your perfect, wise, and good anger towards evil and injustice and sin. We thank you, Lord, that the anger that we deserve for our sin has fallen upon Jesus on the cross. We trust in him. And we are also thankful that you do not wink at the sin and the evil of those who do not trust in Jesus, that you will restore this world to perfect justice and righteousness, that you have appointed Jesus merciful and mighty as judge over every person who's ever lived, no matter how powerful they might be. We trust him to judge justly, to render right verdicts, and we look forward to when he will finish doing it. We pray in his name. Amen.